Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College, covering the intersection of strategy, security, and warfare. Welcome to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded podcast of the Marine Corps War College. Today, we're discussing great power politics. And my guest today is Dr. Christopher C. Harmon, the Donald Bren Chair of Great Power Competition. Dr. Harmon has a long relationship with MCU dating back to 1993 when he first came on board as faculty at the Command and Staff College. He served as the Adamson Chair of Insurgency and Terrorism and the Horner Chair of Military Theory. Dr. Harmon came back to MCU last September from the Asia-Pacific Center and has served as the Director of Curricula and Studies and Executive Director of the Marshall Center in Garmisch, Germany. He's the lead author or editor of six books and dozens of articles and chapters. Dr. Harmon, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure, Doctor. Before we start our discussion on great power politics, tell us a little bit about your background working with the Marine Corps. You have pretty deep experience at MCU going back multiple decades. What's changed in Marine education since 1993? Yes, uh, it is a pleasure to be to be back. I've uh, had several different kinds of tours here, longtime professor of international relations, and then several academic chairs. My last book with the Brookings Institution was co-authored with Randall Bodish, who's a Navy captain who I met teaching here at Command and Staff College in about 05-06. So many good memories. Yeah, what's new? I suppose a visitor first uh, coming into that sort of issue would say the buildings. There's all kinds of, <laughs> of wonderful new buildings, including Gray Center for Research, which I have an office in. Uh, I'm one of those who literally helped carry the library across the street from Dunlop Hall and in help install it here in the Gray Research Center. So that was an exciting period of growth, and um, the, the infrastructure's only continued to grow. Things like McCuff is, is doing good work. The foundation supporting our university always has some new initiatives. Uh, the latest is a MCU Alumni Association, mm -hmm. which you can find uh, newly online. I suppose the the numbers of things that have changed uh, as as an educator would see them are, are numerous. Uh, first of all, there was great emphasis about the time I got here on invigorating seminars. Uh, there had been more emphasis before on lectures and kind of time in the university, in the in the lecture halls, in student seats. And we rebalanced the curriculum, especially with the emphasis of uh, D Colonel J.B. Matthews, uh, Doug McKenna, and got a lot more emphasis on seminars, including some long ones. And it was very fruitful. I think uh, education was encouraged by that process of making the student more the center uh, than whoever was up on stage. We did uh, a course of accreditation, which you've spent as much time on as I have, there's a notable interest uh, and difference with respect to writing. Mm. We have the new Marine Corps University Press with its journal. Uh, we have some great books coming out, as by Ian Brown, who did a new thing on uh, a new conception of warfare based upon uh, his long study of, of John Boyd's work and papers, which we hold here. The command and staff college faculty are very different in terms of their culture about what they do. The focus is not just on teaching or representing as being a good uh, uniformed officer. Uh, it's a tremendous combination of civilians and military people, uh, and there's greater focus on writing and publication. 
I, I strongly endorse that change. Um, I had a good talk with the university president yesterday who by chance, you know, has done about four co-authored articles just in the last year. Right. Uh, he's pushed this and, and the faculty has been very responsive. Uh, Professor Benitez, uh, our NATO expert, shares my interest in the in the uh, Fletcher form of world affairs. We've both done articles there. Uh, ben Jensen uh, is at work with book ideas, uh, Stanford University Press, Cambridge, Oxford, uh, most impressive. There's a terrific book out by our people on the grand strategy that won the Cold War. So Paul Jelpe, Frank mm-hmm. Marlowe, our friend Doug Strusand. Uh, they did a, a really fine and long, long needed book on, on that. So there's um, not to mention our writing center, the new Krulak Center, which is doing original writing. Uh, there's great emphasis, uh, Dr. Johnson, on on writing, uh, which wasn't here before. The president said yesterday, he said, you know, these things are in, uh, there's a nexus, learning, writing, teaching, they're all closely connected. And, and, you know, if that sounds like it's obvious, uh, it isn't. And I had a job not long ago with the government where I watched interest in writing and research almost drain out of the institution. And that was very disturbing to me. And so I think uh, Marine Corps University uh, is doing really well in that respect. Well, I agree with the idea that what you research and you write shapes the thoughts that you discuss or the issues that you raise or the priorities that you bring to seminar discussion. It it sparks ideas with the students who then spark ideas with you to, to spur additional research. Uh, so I, I value uh, the writing, research, teaching connection as well. And and I, like you, have, have been really excited to see to see that continue at MCU. And here I will flag for our listeners, stay tuned, because MCU is is getting ready to launch a new initiative that will encourage you, uh, Marine students that we have in our schools or Marines or or other interested parties in national security to start writing uh, in a more systematic way and receive coaching and feedback on your writing to help improve those skills. So we're not ready to launch yet, but if you have an idea you've been thinking about, we are about to have an outlet for you. But let's shift our discussion and move to the topic of Great Power Competition. You serve as a Donald Bren Chair of Great Power Competition, which I will note is a position funded by the Marine Corps University Foundation, and we sincerely appreciate Mr. Bren's support and Marine Corps University Foundation's support. Yes, indeed. But what does it mean to be a great power? Is there something in particular a state has to do to qualify for that status? Are there conditions to be considered or classified as a great power? A good question. I think that uh, there are six or seven, eight different elements that we we would normally associate with great power status, uh, and, and of course that uh, we recognize the the sovereignty and integrity of of all states, quite apart from size. We 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 talk about uh, major powers. So, for example, my latest article is about Iran, and certainly in the Middle East, it's it's a truly major power, an important power. Um, and then when we think about the, the actual top tier, uh, I would say 
the most obvious thing initially would be literally size. Uh, so uh, someone who's smart about these things like Alfred Thayer Mahan spent a lot of time thinking about uh, the size and shape of a geographical entity, where it's positioned and the extent of its territory. I think in, in 21st century times, we, we definitely go quickly to the notion of a sophisticated and educated population, a technically capable population. Um, so there are, there are states which are, which are numerous, but not necessarily highly talented and advanced in what they offer, uh, in large numbers. And so uh, that side of the population, uh, is a, is a big part of, of greatness. In terms of forces, definitely major military forces are an essential. Otherwise, no one would, would call a state a great power. And that means, for example, you know, in, in Mao Zedong's era, uh, it might be enough to have a, an incredibly a populous army and, and a capable navy and, and, and nascent air force. They, they boasted, whether it's true or not, that they could literally take a, take a nuclear hit from the Soviet Union at times when there was great tension there and still carry on because of all their people. You know, Deng Xiaoping a few years later would, would not incline to that view. Uh, and Deng's four modernizations very much emphasized technology, weaponization of, uh, of some technologies, industry, economic growth. China today looks at the advantages of that explosive effort starting 79, 80, 81 under Deng Xiaoping. So I think he was right to, to emphasize that, that military force goes way beyond population or numbers of conscripts. It goes to how skilled technically a force is. And he was willing to make major cuts in numbers in the PLA. I think obviously the economy is central to a great power. So uh, there are questions of scope of the economy, but also depth of natural resources. Uh, for example, uh, today you hear people warn about you know the the decline of Russia. Uh, I understand the the point, and yet they have a wonderful basis in in natural resources, uh, which will be a great aid to them as a. As a, as a, as a large power and maybe a great power. You have the question of nuclear weapons. That's almost obvious. Most lately, movement into space is, is hmm. not a small thing. I remember when China began putting up satellites and, and, uh, there was concern that both Russia and China, or rather Soviets and Chinese, uh, might eventually be able to take down our satellites by, by weaponizing space. Uh, that's uh, an important thing, which which uh, the great powers are, are all noticing. At least two more. One is uh, alliances. Maybe that's almost uh, obvious, but uh, I sometimes tell my majors when they when they don't pay enough attention to coalition warfare that to not make the mistake I did in graduate school. I I managed to get a doctorate without thinking very seriously at all about coalition warfare. It's absolutely incredibly important in. When, when a war starts and even in maneuvering in peacetime. And then uh, I know the last thing to mention for sure is uh, international organizations and the roles therein. The importance of, of something like uh, for France or England of having a seat on the Security Council uh, can't be understated. The the significance of the new thing, the Shanghai uh, Cooperation Organization, 
that that Russia, China, some of the stands have been been working on. India and Pakistan have joined. That's an important new organization, and they're in a position now uh, to to make some new moves on the world stage, in, in which the the known heft of a power like Russia or China uh, might be accented or improved or enhanced by cooperation with other allies within the the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. So I think international um, organizations uh, uh, sometimes are dismissed, but but we ought to think seriously about them. So you had mentioned Russia, and there seems to be some contention on Russia's designation as a great power or Russia's role in the international system today. And in some conversations with senior leaders, some senior leaders will see Russia as a serious threat to national security, and then some will see it as a second-tier waning power that is essentially coasting on its reputation. Where do you come down in this debate? Uh, the Russia case is, is indeed intriguing, and, and we're cautioned, I think, all of us, uh, you, me, any analyst, in thinking about uh, these, these great powers because of the near silence with respect to the imminent collapse of the Soviet Union. Helene Carrier, Don Kos, and a few other very smart people, including a fellow I met from our Navy once, uh, seem to be ahead of most of the rest of us. Paul Kennedy, author of a magnificent book on the rise and fall of the great powers, missed this completely, despite his focus on great power issues in in 87 when he published. The collapse of the USSR is a a lesson for all of us in many ways, including our, our intellectual humility. So as we try to think now about the successor, it's intriguing to consider the the status of Russia. I do think no state with that many nuclear weapons and that much uh, tremendous conventional force can ever be dismissed. Uh, it is indeed, uh, I think, not just a major power, but but a great power. Uh, it has natural resources, which would make many countries very envious. Um, you can see in the concern in U.S. and, and other capitals about the pipelines that are always under construction for, for oil or natural gas out of Russia to nearby countries. One indicator of this incredible export potential. We know how many mines and, and minerals they, they have. The population is educated. It's got a bent for science. It's got a long history of scientific impressive results. I think it's certainly, if you look at, uh, say, what did Alfred Thayer Mahan say about, about great sea powers, clearly their navy has suffered badly uh, over time, and they'll be, they'll be trying to rebuild. But in terms of uh, configuration and extent of territory and, and so forth, uh, they're in good shape. Mahan further noted, and this is really interesting, um, we liberal democracies, uh, you know, worry about whether we can get an appropriations or an authorization for a certain defense program. Mahan made the observation in his wonderful 1890 book on the influence of sea power that despotic states have a certain advantage in being able to focus a state's resources over time and, and in a protracted way to develop something. So if you want to go to space, if you decide your Navy has been rusting at anchor and you want to dramatically improve it, a state like Russia's is able now to, to do that with a, with a simplicity that more democratic states cannot. So um, we have to be uh, thoughtful about that difference in, in our polities. 
and finally, I guess I would say, in terms of we're, we're just mostly discussing their strengths, the the incursions into both Ukraine and Georgia could have been a, a remarkable dividing point in chronology. But in fact, I would suggest most countries have simply accepted these incursions, uh, which is a kind of appeasement and which is, and which is troubling. But that sort of outward pushing, uh, is notable and, uh, and troubling and, uh, and an indication of, uh, of real power from, from Moscow. I would say as a, as a footnote, in uh, 1995, uh, an, an admired uh, friend of mine named Kevin Smith wrote an article in Strategic Review, and he called it the Soviet Reunion. And it was very imaginative, and it, it uh, sort of looked ahead uh, to what Moscow might be thinking about in the future. So five years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, uh, it was evident that some of the adjacent states were feeling the, both the pull of Russia, but also the prodding and, and poking of, of Russia as they tried to kind of draw them back into some kind of, of net post-89, post-90. Uh, and I, I liked the, the title, the Soviet Reunion, but I also liked the way Major Smith of the Air Force was looking down the road at what we have to think about for the future, uh, not necessarily near term, but, but long term. So Putin's Russia today is a formidable power and, uh, I think has got to be, to be closely watched. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe not with all the strengths of, say, China, but, but a formidable power. So you've recently published a piece on the Kulak Center blog about the U.S.-Iranian relationship. It would certainly be difficult to classify Iran as a great power, but in your analysis, you draw this parallel with North Korea, that both countries' nuclear programs embolden them to essentially punch above their weight geostrategically. You had mentioned nuclear weapons as one of the criteria for great power status a few minutes ago. Are they a golden ticket to be treated as a great power even if the state fails to meet the economic and military or social thresholds that we typically associate with great power status? Excellent question. I think my answer would be that the nuclear weapon by itself probably doesn't yield great power status. Coldly and kind of antiseptically, if, if, if North Korea were to make the wrong move, uh, it could be snuffed out very quickly by regional rivals and outside powers. Uh, its possession of a limited number of nuclear weapons is not an utter uh, salvation, uh, nor is it a ticket of great power status any more than it is uh, for Israel. The two states, of course, couldn't be more different in terms of their comedy with the international community. So, no, but I do think it will enhance Iranian power considerably. Uh, they already have an interesting combination of conventional and special forces. Their Navy and, uh, and Marine Corps assets and army in what they call Artesh are notable, hundreds of thousands of them, but they also have the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, which is uh, also extremely strong and which I looked at closely in this article. Between those conventional forces, their key position 
and uh, their long history and strong culture of, of, of defying threats and, and making them both. I think Iran is a, is a remarkable, strong regional state, uh, but I would not say it was, is anywhere near great power status. And I would keep that position even if they make a couple of nuclear weapons. Your article also highlights the persistent role that Iran has played in sponsoring terrorism. We tend to think of terrorism as a strategy of the weak. What happens when a state with a strong track record of using terrorism also grows by, say, developing a nuclear weapons program? Do we have any historical examples that might guide our thinking? Right. The the uh, the states that work with terror groups uh, can be very disturbing entities. Uh, so the Soviet bloc, uh, not just uh, Russians, but the Bulgarians, uh, the Czechs, some of the others in that bloc, the East Germans, were working with uh, sub-state actors overseas in ways that were often very damaging. Uh, one indication there that, uh, that a strong state can, can use terrorism is surely as a sub-state actor. The Indian experience with Tamil militancy is valuable to study. I've spent a lot of time with that, not just the Tamil Tigers, the LTTE, uh, but other Tamil factions had direct training experience in India, in places like Tamil Nadu, uh, within the state. And, uh, also help in their foreign enterprises. Uh, India's support for Tamil militancy was a great blunder on India's part. I think they, they recognized that. Uh, they helped make and effect a kind of small civil war in the adjacent country, Sri Lanka. They then posted a peacekeeping force there as an attempt to clean up the mess they'd helped make. Uh, it was disastrous in all respects. Fortunately, the Sri Lankans have now defeated that insurgency, the LTTE. Um, so states do use uh, terrorists, and Iran has used them consistently. And I began studying terrorism in the end of the 70s, and Iran has always been uh, right there among the top players in terms of international uh, terrorism. I don't know that it'll affect, therefore, uh, Tehran's policy when or when they don't acquire a nuclear weapon. Uh, but I can say uh, that this is a big subject because Iran has lengthy and regrettable experience in using violence um, overseas. You know, for an American, we saw in the 83 bombings in Lebanon, we saw in the 96 attack on our air force at Kobar Towers in Saudi Arabia. We saw 2011-12, a plot in Washington, D.C., involving the Revolutionary Guards. Uh, we've seen the, the direct hand of Iran. I got interested, therefore, in, in writing this, this uh, I guess it's 3,800 words for our Krulak Center website, uh, because the United States decided in mid-April that the uh, Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps ought to be sanctioned directly as an entity in exporting terrorism. Uh, they had done it in the past, and, and now the U.S. was, was deciding to penalize them. Uh, so I wanted to review Iranian performance in this uh, regrettable area and also kind of look at the, at the matter of, of sanctions and whether they could affect Iranian behavior. Do you think that, that the most recent round of sanctions will be effective? Is that enough to, to stymie their efforts? I think that sanctions have always been a, uh, a questionable but also useful tool 
they can be irritating to allies. For example, when we were trying to constrain behavior by the Nicaraguan Sandinistas, we irritated our Canadian friends with uh, sanctions that had a secondary impact on trade by Canadian vessels. We're doing the same thing now with respect to Iran. We are, are primarily sanctioning the Guard and, and is part of a continuing program of sanctions against Iranian entities, persons and, and, and entities. But some of these sanctions effects will be secondary. There will be people, oh, let's say, uh, commercial interests in Bangladesh that we have good relations with now. They also maybe, let's say they trade with Iran. Once these sanctions bite, we will have a reduced contacts with those Bangladeshi entities uh, as a, as a made up example. We have been, been on this track regularly. It's not just the Trump administration. Uh, we're trying to understand the way in which economic tools work. One of the, one of the books I send my majors to at command and staff from time to time is Juan Zarate's, uh, The Treasury's War, mm -hmm. which is a terrific uh, study of the way economic power can have, uh, have a role. And so, you know, you're, you're functioning at the level of below war. So, you know, the president, Mr. Pompeo, they're right, they're rightly saying we're not looking for war with Iran, but you're trying to use force below the military level. And so there are definite uh, limits to what kind of power like that can work, but it's also power worth trying. So with sanctions, you're looking for cumulative effects. Uh, we've had them working over time for a long time now, and we're adding to those both by hitting individuals and, and entities like the IRGC. I think the pressure is valuable. One reason why the IRGC turns out to be quite an economic empire. An in-house expert we have here, like uh, Dr. Amin Tarzi, Amin Amin Tarzi, uh, would would show the way in in which the force of of Iran is affected by the economic tools that the IRGC holds. They run power plants. They control dams. They have extensive territory warehouses maritime uh, trade capabilities. The Revolutionary Guards is a, is a large economic power. And so within Iran, if you want to, if you want to get at Iran, uh, then you need to affect the Guards' performance. So if our listeners wanted to learn more about great power politics, where can they look? The ancients uh, are still useful. We have Graham Allison giving talks about the so-called Thucydides trap, and uh, I have some real reservations about uh, whether he's a whether he's a trap or whether Sparta was actually trapped in any respect in the course of the of Peloponnesian War. But a lot of the great history narratives give us a chance to you know the the the, the Punic Wars between Rome and Carthage, the the war between Sparta and Athens. I enjoyed working with uh, Williamson Murray and Al Bernstein to introduce uh, a very fulsome study of Thucydides here at the university years ago. We spent, we spent the better part of a week doing the Peloponnesian Wars as a way to look at great power rivalry. Um, I've mentioned Kennedy's book, Rise and Fall of Great Powers. That's a favorite. I've mentioned Alfred Thayer Mahan. I can recommend Dale Walton. 
a young American geopolitician student. Uh, his book, Geopolitics and the Great Powers in the 21st Century, is a fairly new book and a really excellent one that I was looking at just recently. Of all of Colin Gray's work, I think his book called Strategy uh, or On Strategy is, is definitely a good one. And then certainly right here at the university, uh, James Lacey has done a beautiful edition of a, of a fairly new book from Oxford uh, on great strategic rivalries. And he too draws on some of the great scholars like Paul Ray, Barry Strauss, and then he has some of the modern thinkers uh, uh, on these issues like James Anderson doing some recent studies in, in great strategic rivalries. So all of those I think are are very good. And I think uh, the the bottom line would be to to emphasize what we what we do well at our university i think which is work with both history and theory to try to keep a classroom as a very lively and innovative place where you're drawing not just on what the latest news is off the wire or off one smartphone but more long-term patterns which can be found by looking really well at the great military theorists like Mahan, Corbett, Clausewitz, Sun Tzu, uh, and then also particular campaigns which we can study in in history. Uh, and having a, a depth in history is something many, many Marine Corps officers do have. And I think that's, a, that's really a, something which is requisite, but also a great way to study uh, state power rivalries. Mm. I've always been impressed and very grateful that we have this, I'll say it's a split, dual area of emphasis, because I don't feel it's a division in terms of um, faculty's ability to show interest in each other's work or support one another or or work together. But but I very much appreciate that we have a great number of military historians and a great number or area of interest more on political science, international affairs, foreign policy, because I think you're right. We can inform our contemporary discussions with theory that comes out of the political science community, but we can inform those discussions with a great depth of history and the the wealth of historical case studies that our faculty have expertise in that we can draw from is meaning much more meaningful than in a traditional political science department or a traditional history department. I feel like we can do uh, more meaningful work by bringing those together. I, I agree. You know, um, I always remember when we hired uh, Dr. Doug Strusant here. It was right at a time when our country was beginning to almost obsess on on Islam and and what various Muslim actors had in mind overseas, both uh, in terms of state powers and sub-state actors and terrorists. To bring in a fellow like that with a, with a doctorate in Islamic thought and a book with Oxford, but also a guy fascinated by navies, uh, well up on contemporary events. And you put a person like that into a seminar room with, let's say, a, a, a commander from the Navy or a lieutenant colonel of Marines, and it gives a seminar just a remarkable range. And I think the majors have got to be pretty excited about that kind of environment. And, and we do that really well here within the university, mm-hmm. I think. So last question, what are you reading right now that our listeners should know about? And this doesn't have to be oh, anything related no. to great power politics at all. Oh, well, uh, 
I'm always reading some John Steinbeck, who, who, who has nothing to do with, with great power rivalries, uh, but, uh, but did serve the country like some of those novelists did during World War II by becoming quite expert on, on Russia as an ally at the moment, the Soviet Union, and by reporting on our men in battle. I, I think uh, one relevant book would be, I've just gone through a second time, Unrestricted Warfare. Uh, when I was a course director here, uh, and that book appeared in 99, I immediately put it into my syllabus. Uh, two PLA colonels took a look at why uh, 1991, the first Gulf War, was such a transformative event and what the world would learn from it. And they produced a most original work imaginable in this short book called Unrestricted Warfare, uh, which goes in depth into how some new weapons and, and modes of warfare are certainly coming and how special combinations of those by imaginative commanders and, and uh, states will be potent in the future. So it isn't looking only at great powers, but it looks at how all powers uh, get on and how war uh, might change in the future. And they were wise enough to see the impact of something like a trade war. They went deeply into cyber issues. And it's kind of amusing to see Chinese authors talking a lot about Bill Gates. They talked about currency manipulation and some man they were interested in named George Soros. They talked about terrorism and this guy named Osama bin Laden. This is two years before 9-11, right? And they said, as we look down the road we see a lot of continuities in warfare, like the significance of the armed helicopter and ground troops and all that. But what will be really interesting in the future is the way uh, imaginative commanders combine known and unknown weapons of warfare and do things that we simply don't expect. Uh, and so unrestricted warfare has no official status uh, in, in, in Chinese military thought, but it has prominence in an unofficial way. And I think that that book, which is available in translation, is an excellent source on, on military thought. Great. Well, Dr. Harmon, thank you so much for coming on the show. To keep up with the good work of the Marine Corps War College, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook at at McWarCollege. Follow Marine Corps University on social media at at Marine Corps U. Welcome and thanks to our new producer, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Byrne. You've got some big shoes to fill, but we have every confidence that you will. I'm your host, Becky Johnson. Thanks for listening to Eagles, Globes, and Anchors, the strategically-minded, innovative podcast of the Marine Corps War College. This concludes the EGA podcast. Thank you for joining us. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the United States Marine Corps or the Department of Defense. You can follow the Marine Corps War College on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at at McWarCollege. And as always, our podcast music is Stuck in Traffic by Rivero. Have a great day.